0: Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbellay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, June 6th, 2020. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. So, it's a Saturday afternoon, and I have on the one and only Mike Slater. Mike, how is the model railroading hobby for you over the past week?
1: Well, I've uh, been making uh, some super trees for my bridge module. Uh, something I've never done before, and uh, I think so far they've uh, been turning out all, all right. At least that's what uh, Clark had said in a fa- uh, Facebook post that they look good. So, if Clark says they're good, looking good, I think they're probably looking good. <laughs>
0: so, in terms of your super tree recipe, how do you actually put them together?
1: Um, I've watched a few videos in that, on it, um, and I've also kind of looked at their instructions. I initially bought a basic starter kit to experiment with. And, um, I give you a bottle of glue and I diluted the glue or with water as per the instructions of the, the bottle. And from what I've seen and understood, you, uh, first kind of clean up your super tree armature. You know, there's like little, um, I don't know what, how to really explain it in that, uh, little flat. I don't know if they were leaves or, that's kind of interwoven and, and attached to the twigs. And I've been removing those. And, um, then I soak the super tree after I got it, have it shaped the way I want it. Then I, uh, soak it in the diluted glue mixture, uh, according to the instructions. And then I stick it in a piece of styrofoam and let it air dry. Now, after it air dries to me, it just, uh, it, it seemed to be, at least with the super tree armatures I have, seemed to be too, much of a light tan color mm-hmm. um so i pulled out the uh the can of Rustoleum that i use uh spray paint that i use for painting the ties on my uh for track and uh i kind of darkened the you know can didn't really saturate or soak the kind of gave it a light dusting just to darken up the uh the limbs a little bit so it wasn't so tan looking it was more of a a darker or more of a brownish, uh, uh, kind of color armature and then, um, let that paint dry and then, uh, uh soak the, uh, the, the, leaf area of the tree again in the diluted glue mixture after the paint dried and, uh, used some of their, uh, green ground foam that was in the basic kit. And then they, they didn't look too terribly bad, but, uh, after everything dried, it looked like there were some bare spots. So, Today I went to my local hobby store and I, uh, picked up, uh, some, uh, William Scenic's, uh, green, fine, uh, grass, and then sprayed the, uh, uh, the trees in that with, um, uh, the diluted glue mixture and a spray bottle, and then kindly, uh, shook, uh, the, uh, powdered, uh, ground foam on top of it to kind of add a little bit more greenage to the trees. And I think they looked a little bit better in that, uh, from what I initially did. And then, of course you get a little, little scrap bits of the super trees after you start trimming and add and um, not wanting to try to let everything go to waste and add out of the box. I started walking walk around in, in the backyard and of course our uh, one maple tree uh, with the, the breezes we've had little twigs and that have fallen out. And some of those were small enough in diameter that I kind of use those as a a trunk base, and then cool. start super gluing the little bits of uh, super tree material onto the uh, the twigs to start making uh, additional trees.
0: I think the general feedback about super trees has always been that it's what you do to them after the fact that makes them... You know, if you start with the raw kit as you say, just through necessity of detail for want of a better term or maybe realism or just the aesthetic, in order to break the aesthetic of you know, the kind of hyper-processed, or to better term, super trees. And as you say, the colour change, the use of additional material, even, as you say, t- taking, you know, real tree to try to sort a better <laughs> term and using that. I mean, it's interesting, over the years, when I've talked to people about the super trees, you know, people, some of them will blend up old leaves, they'll do a wide variety of things to add to it, to, as you say, break maybe break the monotony or the consistency or um, introduce ideas of realism. I mean, when I look at them, I always think of um, particularly on the bark kind of dry brushing techniques and other ways that you can, as you did with the spray, just create multiple layers of colour in the bark okay. just to kind of eliminate some of the degree of uniformity. Are you going to t- take Marty McGurk's advice and, and make, like, a, a what what's his, the terminology he uses? Like, he uses techniques for his trees based on whether they're foreground or background trees. But the nature of this module seems to indicate that most of the trees are going to be of a kind of consistent distance. So you, I mean, I guess that's what you're doing with the twigs, right? You're actually creating potentially a foreground tree in the twigs and then using the super trees for the background trees. Is that your well, philosophy?
1: Well, the module isn't really that deep. Uh, the, the modules only, I'm um, just trying to remember offhand what I made it here. I think in Marty's uh, case, it was, I mean, when
0: I questioned him, in some cases, it was much, it was only 18 inches or even less in some circumstances. So, I mean, I think your module is probably, what is it? About, is it two feet
1: deep? Uh, I think it's about 16 inches. 16 uh, inches, okay. Deep in that. Six, 16 or 18 inches deep. So it really isn't that wide of a module. And of course, the tracks are going right down the center. Yeah. Um, so, but the big thing with my module, is uh, with the North Shore when they built the bridge through there, it went went through a wooded area, but they cleared out a path of the older growth trees. So the towards the end of operation, a lot of the trees uh, would be of the size and trunk diameter of the super tree uh, diameter. So some of the the twigs that I'm using for trunks on the trees those might represent more on the top of the hill, a little bit further inward, you know, representing an, an older growth tree. Mm-hmm. While all the super trees, being that the trunks are finer diameters, and that it from the pictures I've seen that were taken in the late 50s, early 60s, around the time of the shutdown, uh, I think the super trees' size and stature uh, will give a good representation of the trees towards the, the end of the railroad that's modeling. And in terms of super trees, is this,
0: I mean, in terms of your module community, is there a general agreement that super trees are the standard that are going to be used or you said this is the first time you've used super trees as well. So maybe that isn't the case.
1: I'm, I'm personally looking at being that the the pictures I've seen is a heavily forested uh, or wooded area that this bridge went through and trying to do something that is low cost even though the, the big box of, uh, uh, super trees that I just bought, uh, today at the hobby store was in excess of a hundred dollars for the, the big, uh, brown cardboard box that the armatures came in. Yeah. But, uh, when you start pricing out, if I were to buy, uh, the Scenics, highly detailed, uh, trees, uh, you you'd be looking at, uh, between fourteen to twenty dollars a tree. So that would only get you about, if I were to buy the woman's in its <laughs> highly detailed trees. Yes. I'd have about maybe five trees.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly.
1: It is interesting, the, the spread of
0: price points associated with trees. I mean, I think this is why, you know, purists like Marty are, you know, strictly about the self-assembly of trees. Because obviously, I guess if you have a process... I mean, we were talking to Luke Lemons uh, a few shows ago, and he... I, I guess, takes it to a different extreme. I mean, he's really, you know, looking at price point very heavily associated with the size of his layout. So it's interesting, the the niche that super trees have found, I guess, in the hobby, of not being absolutely the, the highest possible detail, but certainly well above... I mean, historically, what, what were the, the prior manufacturers of trees? I mean, obviously, Woodland Scenics, are they had low end offerings historically, or what, what have the low end trees been historically?
1: Well, historically, uh, back, uh, starting off probably like in the, the sixties, seventies and eighties, all the way up until probably about the, the early nineties when I was working at the hobby shop, uh, you would have, uh, manufacturers like Bachman, uh, mm. you had lifelike, mm-hmm. you had, uh, AHM, uh, they would have the, the generic, uh, I don't know how you would describe kind of like the puffball type mm-hmm. tree. Um, probably the, the more realistic trees that life like made that look more real compared to the other trees they offered was their plastic armatures with uh, wire that was molded in the plastic. And then over the wire, they would stick lichen, uh, onto the, the wire and at um, to kind of hold the lichen in place, uh, compared to. Trees that you'd find from like woodland scenics in the box, uh, I would say those are more uh, more realistic than what you had in the older offerings back in the day. Uh, but still, they do offer woodland scenics does offer a, a higher end uh, tree, uh, which I did purchase for some of my Fremo modules where I only had, needed about uh, two or three trees per module. Mm. Uh, the the higher end woodland scenics, I didn't mind having to spend, you know. 15 twenty dollars a tree because it was uh, I only needed a few but in this particular scene uh, when you're looking at it, you almost need a hundred tr- 100 trees to fill in the scene <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, yeah the, the the bank of Slater didn't the pockets didn't go that deep <laughs> yeah so I mean as you are
0: a hobbyist I mean you know many aspects of the hobby I mean particularly you know you talked recently about pickup traction and the the knowledge associated with land Capri... You know, cables, what have you. What, what would cause you to become a tree expert and start making your own wire armatures and doing this? I mean, would it just take like a lot of modules that required this level of forestation for want of better term? Or, I mean, what, what pushes you into becoming an expert in a particular area in this hobby?
1: Um, I think it's just trying to do the particular scene in that. If I were to do the river bridge scene, let's say without any trees, could I accomplish that scene? As the bridge would have been built in the 19 teens, 1920s. Yes, I could have done that. But then the module, even though you had a ravine with a river in it, I think it would have looked so barren and, um, uh, we're at least adding the, the scene in its, uh, later in life appearance. Hmm. I, I think gives it more texture and, uh, a little bit more interest and it would be a more photogenic, uh, module for certainly taking outdoors and, doing photo shoots with
0: certainly well i mean it's already that it's already that module in terms of the way that you're you know photographing it and certainly i think the the accolades that you're receiving even as it's as a module work in progress indicate very strongly that it's both a beautiful scene but also something where people get lost in the scale of it and these kind of things so it's funny i have to constantly remind myself that it's not a huge <laughs> you know, 50 foot long module, uh, because yeah. of the way it photographs, it photographs yeah. very well. So, yeah, I understand your, uh, your need for tree, but I think what fascinates me is the, the crossover. I mean, certainly we've had on particularly some Australians that are very big on tree realism. And certainly I lament in, in the wargaming community that there isn't a, a similar interest in, you know, foliage because oftentimes, you know, they're, you're in a kind of S to O scale kind of tree size thing. But yeah, lots of people in wargaming just use HO, <laughs> the bottom line HO scale trees. It always seems to me to be the complete antithesis of the way things really are. In terms of, um, in terms of the Lionel community and these kind of things, I mean, is there a tree community in that, you know, in that scale? Is there a high rail tree community? Does Lionel have tree offerings?
1: Um, well. I would say probably the majority of the people, and again, it depends. You know, there's so many different segments within the Lionel community. You know, there's the toy train operate operators, which uh, they probably are looking, you know, because they want that vintage look and Certainly. vintage feel. They're looking for the old AHM lifelike <laughs> and, and Bachman trees from the day. Yes. Uh, or some of them will even use the the injected molded uh, plastic, not plastic, but uh uh, Bachman, uh, Plasticville trees, mm. you know, to, to stay with that, that 1950s, Aesthetic. 1960s yes. really train feel. Yes. And then you have another group within the three rail community that's known as high railers. And that high railers, of course, are the guys that are gals that are, uh, going for the real, realistic scenery, but their trains may not be realistic at all. Certainly. It is
0: interesting. The, yeah. We periodically talk about the Lionel community, but this is interesting. I see um, through Dave Ferry's Facebook page, more than anywhere else, he occasionally has built, as you say, these high rail layouts, which are amazing levels of detail and huge. I mean, vast layouts with, you know, trees and water and stuff like that. But it's still, you know, Lionel track. (laughs) (laughs) So it is interesting. The And also the kind of people you can... I mean, I just get this by observation, but I can see who the high railers are associated with the space and what have you that they have. But, I mean, obviously, if you're employing Dave Freire, you've got to have a bit of time and a bit of money, and you've obviously thought a bit about this thing as well. So, yeah, it is interesting, just the vignettes that I get into these particular communities. But in terms of realistic tree size, this is something that we've talked about primarily with Australians. Do you know of any community... I mean, as you see louts, as you go on tours, do you know of people that are, you know, creating prototypical sized trees in HO?
1: Truthfully, honestly, I never really paid too much attention to trees before <laughs> this, this, this project, you know, with the Fair exception of maybe trying to add a little bit more texture to a scene, yes. but never really, uh, paid much attention, uh, to, the, to the aspect of it. Um, uh, Probably not the answer answer you're looking for. No, not for, at all. No, no. honesty
0: is always good. Honesty is always <laughs> yep. good. I'm exactly. interested. I mean, Jim Rint, you you know the Rints obviously very closely for his large end scale layout that he was working on for many years. Were the trees on that? I mean, there must have been trees on that layout.
1: Uh, yes. He he didn't work well. I should shouldn't say that. Initially, they didn't really work on the scenery aspect of it. They they worked more on the the structure aspect of it. But towards the end, they had uh, Peter uh, putting trees in place on, on the display in that. And, um, you know, were, were they concerned about, you know, you're not going to put a tree in an end scale layout that's six inches tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because in six inches tall, you start calculating out the scale. It'd be probably uh, a giant uh, redwood type tree that you could almost drive a car <laughs>
0: through. But uh,
1: <laughs> but uh, so you, you have to kind of. What looks right. And there might be a few trees that I'm, uh, working on the super trees that may not go onto the module. And that just because that by the time you would start figuring out the, the scale of it, you know, they, they're probably going to be too large for mm-hmm. the river bridge scene, but, uh, they may work on another module down the road or, uh, they may even, uh, who knows, maybe go into like a diorama for, uh, photographing some of my O scale models. Yes. Yes, I lament that I
0: never saw Terry Terence's layout because I think that's certainly a layout where the tree size potentially could have been quite commanding um, yeah. for the area that he was modelling. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, certainly when we talk to Marty, he has a lot of really strong opinions. I mean, even down to like the minerals that trees pick up. I've never seen one of his tree clinics, I don't think. But I, he I certainly when I talk to him, and the aesthetic of, of like different foliages and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it is really a part of a hobby where if someone is specifically into trees, they will go the extra mile. It's interesting that you're kind of, you know, you're in, you're someone who I would think has seen almost every aspect of this hobby and done almost every aspect, but trees are clearly just one area that you've never really delved into too heavily until now. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, that and uh, water. <laughs> 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 so, um, like, you know, again, you know, t- two areas on this module that, you know, that it will have heavily of two different areas. Luckily, uh the Ritt river isn't a clear river. It's kind of a, a murky river yes. in appearance, and even though it's shallow in that, so uh at least World and Scenics has a, a murky uh water that's kind of tinted on the brown side yes. with their two-part epoxy. So, it, you know, it, there's going to be a little bit of learning curves on a couple different fronts in that, but... uh that, that's the great thing about the hobby is you never really know everything about the hobby. There's always a lot of things to learn and improve on.
0: <laughs> I mean, have you heard some of the discussions that I've had recently? I've had it both with the folks in the UK and also with Martin Jenkins in Australia. These new radio-controlled vehicles that people are talking about that are like HO scale and just mean that you can now drive. Well, I mean, I think the folks in the UK, they're, they're O scale size vehicles. It's still now radio controlled vehicles about coming part of the hobby for, you know, additional realism and these kind of elements. I mean, do you foresee a time where the module community will also have, you know, dirt roads and stuff alongside for RC vehicles to drive on? I mean, what's, what are your thoughts of this new aspect to the hobby?
1: Well, there, there are so many different improvements within the hobby. Um, as far as I think that'll be up to the modular clubs themselves and the module or layout builders uh the fremo uh community which you know i haven't really done much in within the past few years but i'm still kind of consider myself involved with Uh, some of the scenes again you know the road if you ever had a long module set where you had the roads long enough could you have somebody driving their car back and forth yes you could but then again are they going to then build other modules that wouldn't have track to just be able to drive vehicles? You know, it's a possibility. You know that there's so many different interests in the hobby that uh, <laughs> you know they could go. You could go there, but on the other hand, that's a whole entire another set of infrastructure that you have to worry about maintaining, and especially Absolutely. if you if you have a modular layout, you have to make sure that those joints are also smooth enough between modules for your roads that uh, you don't have any uh, issues in that.
0: I mean, certainly when I first started seeing the videos when Martin Jenkins, well, maybe through Martin, maybe independently as well, I just thought the level of the soldering alone, just the, the mechanical component to this thing, but also the electrical component was so overwhelmingly tiny and just fiddly. And I'm interested actually periodically catching up with Martin to see how he's going with it. Because it strikes me... I mean, the folks in the UK, slightly larger scale, definitely more robust. And they're using existing chassis. So it has to be more robust just to deal with the existing chassis more than anything. But yeah, it it strikes me as very interesting that the... I mean, you know, historically, there have always been, you know, ice skaters and moving chickens and these kind of things. But now, when you're dealing with infrastructure, and I think a lot of the... Um, you know potential for you know m- m- just general movement like you've got some kind of crane that's offloading onto some kind of truck that's moving in a particular area within an industry you can have this kind of localized movement which i think would bring interest and certainly that's what the folks in the uk are talking about but martin is talking about like regular cars <laughs> and having roadways with regular cars and that is a very uh very different thing again as as the fire truck again drives past my house so it's in, in terms of stuff in the hobby I and mean, obviously we've talked quite a bit about your you know movement into attraction community. what kind of stuff is interesting you currently?
1: well, probably the four brass models that I just recently purchased <laughs> um, but uh, uh, there uh, there's a few different things you know i, I just ordered a, a new Lionel engine hmm um, uh, some may agree with or disagree with the, <laughs> uh, the paint job on it because it is a little bit political in nature, which I don't think we need to go down, down that Fair road. Fair enough.
0: But, uh, <laughs> well, we will move on from this now.
1: But, uh, but, uh, I don't know. I, I think with me, you get to a point that, um, when you have so much, it has to be really something different or odd that at least would catch my eye. Yeah. Uh, for, for me to, to go after, you know, there's, uh, you know, looking at the, the latest after an offering of the, the redone Amtrak, uh, AM, AMD 103, uh, model of the P42. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, I, but the biggest problem is I already have probably about a dozen of the <laughs> previous releases that they did. And, um, would I rather them offer the chassis with the upgraded motor and sound, uh, Chassis and that with the sound decoder separately Mm. instead of a locomotive. In my case, probably yes, because I, you know, already have enough engine shells that I've already added additional details (laughs) to that. that I don't don't need to go out and and buy you know a two hundred dollar locomotive that I already have a dozen copies of. It is interesting. I mean,
0: certainly a few things have kind of come together in recent weeks with me. The first is that I've been wanting to move into video uh, at least demonstrations for my other podcast, My Rules Are Better. And I've kind of set up a space for that. In the process of setting up the space for that, I've realized I've got way too much stuff. In fact, we brought down everything from the attic. I've been through that. I've been sending off a lot of stuff to people. I came to maybe half a dozen boxes of model rail radio related stuff. And thankfully, you gave me your address today so I could send you a couple of medium-sized priority mailboxes of various, you know, things. But a large portion of the hobby that we, you know, we talk to people about, and I see this in people's houses as well. I go to layouts and what have you. They tend to have a kind of storage room that is genuinely packed with stuff. Usually, thankfully, if they're relatively smart in the interests that they have, but oftentimes there's a little bit of, of spillover as well. I've also rediscovered the show. I'm not sure if you've seen this show, but there's a show called Hoarders, which is very scary in some regard because you see the worst aspect of human psychology but it strikes me this this is a hobby where people the professor uses the term kitting where you basically get stuff for a project and you're waiting till you have that critical amount of stuff for the project and then you do the project how i mean you have a finite amount of space right how do you organize the hobby the space do you have a, a priority or a philosophy where you give things on to people I mean, obviously, you do a small amount of kind of wheeling and dealing sales-related stuff as well. How do you just function in the space associated with the hobby?
1: Um, probably not very well. <laughs> 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 um, you know, should I probably be going through some things again and in, in downsizing some stuff? Probably should, uh, but then again, there's reasoning you know for especially my more recent purchases that of why i purchased it you know and so it um so it's uh i would say yeah right now my main interest is the uh is the truck in it but then again if i had the ability to build my own home layout and that uh uh i would probably go with uh it'd be kind of a hard toss-up between either a milwaukee road uh mm-hmm. or a wisconsin central uh uh, themed railroad, or it might be a generic themed railroad where I could easily take off all the rolling stock and engines and do Milwaukee Road one for a while and then take all the Milwaukee Road stuff off and put all the WC stuff on and maybe change out a, a few, uh, depot structures or something like that just to give the proper appearance and act. And it would be
0: HO, way. right? You do it in uh, HO. That would,
1: that, that would be HO. and hmm. But then, uh, you know, have the, the Lionel interest, maybe the, the large Lionel layout that's currently in the basement maybe, uh, wouldn't be existing in, as its form. And it might be a shelf up along the top of the ceiling mm-hmm. more, uh, just so I can, uh, enjoy running, uh, the larger, uh, scale stuff. So it, uh, uh, that's one of my other problems is being, uh, uh, multi <laughs> Yes, I've,
0: I've decided that the O-scale stuff is the stuff that interests me, which makes it very easy in some yeah. regard. But it means that, uh, you know, the N-scale stuff I'm sending on to you as well. I'm keeping a small amount. I've got an N-scale locomotive, which is an Arriva. It's not, a, they call them DMUs, which are basically two coaches. They're power coaches. And okay. that existed when we lived in the UK. So we used to travel on Arriva trains. I kept a couple of the Australian uh N scale things because I thought the rints probably wouldn't have any interest in that. But yeah, it is interesting going through and just, you know, selectively saying because I get sent I used to get sent a lot more stuff. I don't get sent stuff, thankfully, as much as I used to, and I used to send out parcels and parcels and parcels. But yeah, just coming to a couple of or well, maybe three sealed boxes. Opening them up and realizing, oh, this, this is a bunch of stuff from show 100. Now, the deeply personalized stuff from show 100, in particular, all the barbellay graffiti and stuff like that, I'm keeping. But there was a lot of additional stuff from show 100 and, you know, various bits and pieces where I just thought, Mike Slater will run these locomotives and rolling stock. Like Mike Slater will actually get out there and use them, hopefully, or pass them on to someone. I thought it's better to get them to Mike and he could pass on the N scale stuff to the rinse as well. You know, sure. get it used, right? I yeah. think, oh yeah, yeah. It's interesting the the nature of the hobby in terms of. Uh, I mean, I I know a few layouts locally where the folks actually are frequent as sellers on eBay as well because of the quantity of stuff they have. I mean, I've never been to Charlie Getz's layout, but certainly the other layouts in the area, the I don't know, just the vast quantity of stuff that people seem to amass in this hobby is really quite overwhelming. Now, the background to this, aside from just having my podcasting room in a state where I can do video recording, is now my sister-in-law is coming to stay for some period of time. So it's one of two spare bedrooms in the house as well. So, like, okay, I'm going to use it. I'm going to clean out the space. But it is interesting the nature of the hobby in terms of, like, firstly, focus on a scale ideally, focus on a period ideally. Focus on things around that, because there's going to be enough stuff in that alone. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting hobby. We have on the one and only Mike O'Dorney as well. Mike Slater and I are talking about the the hobby store nature of the hobby. You seem to be relatively lean in terms of your approaches to the hobby. And I've never actually seen uh, Casa de O'Dourney, so I don't get a sense of your actual space, but... I mean, do you have a policy associated with how stuff comes to you in the hobby? And, you know, do you avoid, you know, hoarding tendencies and these kind of things? Or maybe there's a, there's a side to my Adorno that I just don't know about. What are your general philosophies in this area?
2: Okay, well, generally, I have to, um, um what I do is I have to finish something to make a space for something to come in. In other words... I think of my house as a giant shipyard where you have a ways where ships get built and then you have dry docks where these finished hulls can get moved into for further fitting. And then you have dock space where you can park a boat either on the dock or in a mooring to completely you know, paint the rooms and put in the beds and all this kind of stuff. So I tend to move things in kind of a progress. Um, I have a challenge in that the actual model railroading stuff, I have a system of using uh, boxes that Xerox paper comes in. Mm. And I, um, for the most part, they are trimmed to be about four and a quarter inches high. So they will stack. So that some of the boxes have to be a full height. Like if I'm putting in like a um, a bunch of big craftsman kits, it'll take a full size box. But if I have a couple of cars to have... Um, uh, wheels replaced and KD couplers and proper weights. They'll go into a skinny box. So there'll only be one layer. So I have a, um, I have what I call organized complexity. So everything is labeled. Everything is stacked. And, um, I, as I acquire new stuff, other stuff either gets given away, which is kind of easy because my club has a, a fleeby table and I have no problem in, um, Bringing stuff to the club, putting it on the freebie table and, uh, letting, you know, other members have it. Um, and, uh, um, whereas I, I kind of have a, a fixed amount of, of, uh, cubic feet of space for the hobby. And, uh, so once it's full, something has to go to make room. And, um, I am, I am retired now, so I'm at the point where I can say, this is a project I will never do. Um, and uh, like, for example, I had this brilliant idea of making a make and take clinic, making vacuum cleaner cars. In other words, a car that goes down the track with a couple of tiny fans, the kind of fans you have on a video card in a computer, and then having a uh, compartment that would suck up all the lint into the car, just like an ordinary, ordinary, you know, blue box, box car. Mm -hmm. So I started, I started accumulating power supplies and, um, video cards with these small fans and the power supplies you know came from dumpster diving the power supplies and the the video cards i managed to accumulate probably about um i would say about oh nine of them or ten of them Hmm. and the collection of these took up three of these xerox paper boxes (laughs) and then then i realized that I was not getting enough to do a make-and-take clinic. I only had enough for maybe nine or ten people, not yes. fifteen or twenty. And I said, "Okay." In six years, I have not found any more mm-hmm. small fans. So I will let someone else do this project, and I threw everything away just to make up room. So, in other words, it, it um, the predictability of trash picking did not harvest enough <laughs> random <laughs> random video cards. In other words, uh, there was a You know, I worked at a company that had a, a huge electronic dumpster and the company had a huge collection of, um, stuff made by basically, you know, sophisticated, you know, mill spec style equipment that had a lot of fans and a lot of, um, stuff like that. So, so yeah, I would, I would, I tend to, I tend to approach things of, you know, which one is going to be better. In other words, it's kind of like when they, they came out and started building the first American jet airplane. And they had, you know, three, three candidates for the plane that all of them would do the job, but they essentially settled on the P-80 Shooting Star, which became the T-33. And, uh, the other two candidates never made it. Mm. And, uh, kind of like the, um, the first jet transports, the 707, the DC-8, and the, um, Convair 880, mm. or 990. Depending on which version, and the uh, the 707 had an advantage in that the design was a World War II design. Mm. But the um, the DC-8 suffered from the inertia of the Douglas Company, so they were slow to get to market because they still thought there was life in piston planes. Yes, and and Convair Convair took a nerd approach and said we want to make the fastest plane, but it only has. 3 and two seating whereas the 707 had three and three seating so um, the um, my projects tend to have either um, significant functional faults such as three and two seating or <laughs>
0: too,
2: too late to market like BCA because I'm um, depending on old stuff yes so I, uh, I I I sort of look at things that were it seemed it was the old it seems like a good idea at the time and there's a steady flow of stuff out of my house and given the nature of the quarantine um mm-hmm. most of the stuff i will find in industrial dumpsters or in like woodlots which are there to be for the taking that has really dried up so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of stuff has um dried up and i started working on projects with the, the virus i started on working on projects of of what can i finish that will result in freeing up the largest cubic feet of space. Certainly. In other words, it's not like what I want now versus, um, um, I mean, ideally, if I was smart, I would be sitting here every night and taking, you know, half a dozen cars, getting the weights right, getting the couplers right, getting the wheels right, and um, qualifying them to work for operating sessions.
0: Mm. And then, you
2: know, putting my putting my name on the cars and making up a car card. I should be doing six of those every night so that at the end of, of, um, you know, 30 days, I would have 180 cars, yes. which is decent for an operating. But I haven't. I have, um, um, you know, focused on, like you say, the pack rat approach of uh, um, <laughs> a uh, of, um, of pack rat approach that leads to producing more cubic feet of free space as opposed to um, the number and the value of the items. Because uh, essentially... I can be able to do anything with anything until the virus is over. Yes. In, other words, in other words, I have a, uh, I have a, a, a module that I would like to build for a club. That's not going to have a meeting for another six months. Yes. And, uh, so it's just no hurry on it. And, um, um, and I, you know, I, I have these, I have a lot of projects that I probably wouldn't do if it wasn't a quarantine, um, I think that the, the quarantine produces more productive labor, more hours mm. of labor at home than I would otherwise. Um, I would, th- I would say that before the quarantine, I would say that I would be gone from the house about 16 hours a week more than I am now. Mm. And, uh, I mean, and I like being home. I mean, it's like, uh, I'm not going stir crazy. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't go out and watch trains just to get a break. I, uh, if I want a break, I'll do something else. And, yeah. uh, and say, I'm, I'm sick of looking at this wood project. And, uh, you know, and every once in a while you start on a, I, uh, I have an unusual project for a set of legs for a module that is, it has some unusual requirements. And naturally I am going to build it in dirt cheap plywood. Just to see, um, to see what I get, knowing that it's not really what I want. You know what I mean? But you don't mm-hmm. know what you want. So you You're
0: prototyping. I think that's the term, right? You prototype. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. It's exactly it. That, um, that, that, uh, that, um, like for example, when you fold the legs of a module into the module, in other words, when you fold them up, under the module, there's usually a toggle in the middle, a little piece of wood, like one inch by four inches that you twist. Mm hmm. And it acts as a lock to keep the legs from flopping around. Well, for this particular application, the toggle shouldn't be in the center of the module. It should be offset by about an inch. Mm-hmm. And that will make, that will make the functionality of the module that much better. Now it's, it's kind of a lot of nerdliness that I'm talking about. But as we get into the show, I'm, I'm going to put this stuff online and you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, it's like a, um, oh, um, you know, it's like, um, it's kind of like, so I knew an architect who designed a house and he liked to cook and entertain and he started with a fork from the fork. He built drawers of a certain size and the drawers of the certain size became a ki- became a kitchen of a certain size. Hmm. And then from that became a house. And, uh, so he basically optimized everything starting from a fork. And some of these projects are like that. I start with, um, you know, I start with a, a a small piece of wood and everything expands from there to, to fit a function. I guess what I'm saying is that I have done enough different modular shows with enough different modules hmm. that I'm trying to make every module do at least two things well. In other words, it'll work with one club or another. Mm-hmm. And then I say every module should do two and a half things and a half thing. The half thing is, will this module get me closer to my master model railroad? In interesting,
0: words. interesting. You know, okay. you
2: know, or one other thing I'm looking at is that um, track occupancy. And I'm using modules to experiment with a lot of really weird ways of determining track occupancy. The usual things like current detectors and resistors on wheels mm-hmm. and photo cells that either point up. Mm-hmm. Uh, photo cells that reflect infrared. Certainly. Photo cell and a source that look across. In other words, you have a little building yep, and a pile of yep, logs. Yep.
0: And,
2: and yet I'm going into even more nerdly things. <laughs> such as these, you know, these little range finders, like the Polaroid range finder certainly. on the camera. The little, yep. So, certainly. Things like that I'm trying to make work. And, uh, I, um, I, I worked for BART. I worked for a railroad. And BART worked, um, on a track occupancy system. Where not only did you enter a block and short circuit the rails, it would measure the resistance and determine where you are based on the resistance. In other Certainly. words, if you got a hundred ohms, it meant that you were a quarter mile away. If you got two ohms, it meant you were fifty feet away. Certainly. And I'm and I'm trying to replicate that in HO with a number of mechanical and electrical um, techniques. And I'm also trying to I'm trying to build modules that will accommodate signals which are easily damaged by hands. You know, in an operating session, you usually knock them over, so I make them held in place with magnets, so if you knock it over, it just falls over and you put it back. Um, or um, they're semaphore types, which you can, A, you can see in the daylight. In other words, you don't have to squint to see a, an LED when it's kind of not, not so much direct sunlight. But even if even if you're in under, under a canopy and you're outdoors, there's enough ambient light that you can't see some of these lights and also, some people are colorblind. So uh having a semaphore makes for signals that work with colorblind people. And the long down the road, way down the road, is replicating the, uh, I don't know if you remember the uh, the old operations roadshow,
0: mm-hmm. which mm-hmm.
2: taught um timetable and train order. Certainly. And essentially, it had to be huge. Yes. You had like a 48- a- 100 modules. feet
0: long in some cases. I think the one I finally yeah. saw- Was was 100 feet long of these modules. Right.
2: And uh, so a lot of your modules are very happily used as fillers. Mm -hmm. In other words, if somebody says to me, can I borrow four of your modules? They don't have to work. All I need is four modules worth of straight track to separate two towns. And uh, and that's all they have to do. They don't have to do anything smart. You just have
0: to work. Can we talk yeah. a little bit about this? Because certainly the, the notion of modules in flux, you've talked about you getting modules from clubs, you've talked about building new modules, obviously you're passing modules on. Do you have a... I mean, you talk about fixed limitation associated with the spa, space, of these boxes, but do you have a, a rule that you only ever have, say, 12 or 20 modules in your home? Or, I mean, what's the logistics associated with creating these modules you do refurb as well getting the modules out to people i mean there just seems to be a a relatively constant flux of modules
2: well um it's like this this is a very weird analogy however today is d-day and today is the day that a lot of landing craft landed on the beach in normandy now they had some benefit in the fact that Um, They had a plethora, they had a shortage of landing craft, but they had no shortage of big boats. So they could send landing craft to the beaches easily. However, in the Pacific theater, one of the challenges was you didn't have an England right next to you. You had basically a thousand miles of Pacific, and then you had to launch a, say, four landing craft from a destroyer. And part of what you ate for dinner on the second day was determined by how big a box of food would fit in the hallway of a destroyer, and when you go down the hallway, every once in a while there's some pli- pipes or plumbing or all kind of the ship or a structural element, which meant that what would normally hold a box of meat would only hold a box of flour. So um, the food would get passed through the ha- through the doorways onto the landing craft as it get loaded for launching, and it had to be in a linear fashion. And a lot of it was it was you know, is scheduled in the hallway. So a lot of my modules are like that where my ultimate my ultimate parameter is a a forty eight inch by thirty inch footprint. And how many modules can I stack up? Even to the point where I have thought of designing modules that I call Matruskas, where you have a very large grain elevator on the top one and underneath it is a slightly smaller three story station. That pokes up through the hole in the bottom of the module above it. So as you stack up these modules, they are stacked in a fashion that they, they may be only like two or three inches apart, but the tall buildings fit into spaces in the module above them. So, uh, so that is how I, I, I basically limit myself to four stacks of 48 by 30 inch modules. So, uh, that's my, my ultimate limit. So that means you can stack them and wheel them around in the garage and you can probably stack them about six feet high. So I am fundamentally limited to probably, um, four times, um, four times six or seven. So I'm probably limited to 28 modules. Plus I have one area that's a zone for things like corners and turn backs and loops and, you know, weird things. And, um, but the advantage is that my rule of thumb is the weirder the module, the skinnier it is. So the, a lot of my weird modules are only three inches thick. And the scenery consists of a lot of industries that are essentially underground. In other words, they're an abandoned clay pit. And uh, you may be an in industry that treats creosote's telephone poles. And your spot on my module is a pit full of creosote. And next to it is an abandoned clay pit with a little house, which is your office. But it's all none of it sticks more than a quarter inch above the track. So, Because uh, I find that maneuvering, um, bigger modules maneuver easier if they're flat and skinny. And uh, so uh, so it's, it's kind of a... Uh, um, um, and a third analogy is, if you're tunnel boring mm-hmm. through a city, putting in the subway line, like the one go through San Jose, if you're using a tunnel boring machine, your limiting factor is how fast can you pull the dirt out of the Underground. And how fast can you send in the concrete pieces for the wall or the tube of the, you know, the assembly of the tunnel in? In other words, you have, you have a, you know, a, a traffic jam getting stuff in and stuff out. And, uh, um, I have often thought that, um, that tunnel boring could be done by having a six inch pipe of epoxy concrete that you pipe down the epoxy and the hardener that form a rigid concrete. And it goes into a shell that essentially folds up like a like um origami, and you unfold it and you fill it with concrete and you cure it right near the boring face, so that you're actually making the curved segments for the tunnel in the tunnel, and you eliminate the traffic jam of finished tunnel pieces going into the tunnel that's that's my you know mechanical electrical um, chemical and software matrix solution for how to make tunnels work faster so i i look at i look at my modules and say what am i doing mechanically what am i doing electrically what can i do with software and you know what kind of glues fasteners chemistry chemicals and things like that make these things compact
0: enough to really enjoy so uh, in terms um, of the modules as you've described them i mean do you have favorites within that do you have ones that you know are going to be in flux do you I mean, I'm mean, i interested in just getting a sense of the logistics. You're mentioning, you know, 20, 30-odd modules that you have comfortably plus additional ones. Of those, do you have favorite modules that you can ever see parting with? Do you have modules where you've learned something in the module that you'd pass them on to other people? I mean, I'm interested in just how you kind of logistically work through. Like, in any given year, would there be, you know, four modules that you'd give away... Four modules that you'd work on. I mean, what, what kind of ratio of the shift happens within these modules as well?
2: I would say that basically in any given year, two modules get given away. And I, um, I, I did just that with the European. Um, and uh, you know, so much of this hobby is driven by people. It's when you come right down to what model railroading is driven by the people you're doing things with. I had two European modules. That formed a city in Belgium, which is a city that was in part of the Battle of the Bulge. It was significant there. It was Mm -hmm. the farthest, the farthest big town east or west that the, uh, the sixth Panzer got. And, um, it was a town called Traponts, three bridges, Mm -hmm. which means if you got three bridges, you hopefully have three, you know, combat engineers to blow them up. Mm And, uh, um, and they did. And, uh, so the, the module meant a lot to me. However, um, and it was in Belgium, which Belgium is one of those countries where my sister said, you would like Belgium. She went to Belgium, came mm. home and said, you would like this country. And I said, well, you know me, so I'll take your word for it. And I do. And, uh, so I, unfortunately, the, um, the European club went to a phase where the club was pretty much centered on the peninsula, pretty much San Carlos all the way up to about, um, basically Daly City. Mm. And these, there was five or six people that were key players in making the club work. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, in one seven-month period, they retired, they died, they moved on, they got divorced, they sold their houses. And that core of, of people vanished.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: it took, it took the European modulars a good four or five years to replace all the skill sets of all those people. So, uh, so in that case, the modules kind of sat because we really didn't use them much. Because I mean, we were, we had we had years where we would have in a three hundred and sixty-five day year, we would have the module set up about close to two hundred days mm. out of, of three hundred and sixty-five. Oh. And then it plummeted. It plummeted to about seventeen or eighteen days, you mm. know, at the at the bottom. And they were heavy. And because I basically learned that I really like mo- working on modules upstairs in my house. So 80 pound modules don't go upstairs well. Um, (laughs) I, I even designed a little mechanical foot type machine that would walk up the stairs Mm. with the mod. In other words, a little, you know, kind of stepping device, which I, I resurrected because I ran into a guy in the Sacramento European chapter and they have a church that they work on and they have stairs galore. And I said, you guys need my stair stepping machine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you stick a, um, you stick a Makita drill on it, pull the trigger and let the thing walk itself up the stairs. I mean, um, you know, uh, if I got an 80 pound module, I don't care how slow it is to go up the stairs because I don't have to pick it up. All I have to do is sit there <laughs> and hold the trigger. And when I run out of batteries, I got plenty. And, uh, so, so I mean, it's like, um, I guess I am sufficiently gadget savvy. Um,
0: although model railroaders tend to be gadget savvy. Mm.
2: I think I can, um, put this way. I can give anybody a run for their money. So the British uh, modules,
0: sorry, the European modules specifically, there was flux in the club. So you realized that you had to give those away. Right. Yeah. And were were they two, there were two modules that created this Belgian town, the three bridges town.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Now, um, they were one of the first modules ever built for the club. They weighed 80 pounds a piece. And, um, and the other thing was that we we never really developed operating systems, operating sessions well with the European modules. Um, when the club went into flux, um, the um, you know the club went into flux as kind of a project. You know, whenever a club is in a lull, it's a great time to go through and refurbish and replace old modules. And uh, I mean, when you got them on, when you when you're exhibiting, you know, half the time. You don't have enough time to throw away a corner and rebuild a new one. Well, during this period, they did throw away the four corners and did rebuild them. And what I wanted them to do when they rebuilt the corners is to put industries on the corners and have four spur tracks that uh, a trailing point spurs. And because uh, you really need, if you're going to have a module, you're showing it to the public a lot. You kind of got to have as few facing point switches as possible. You have all trailing points, you know, two thirds or three quarters, because you don't have to worry about derailing. So anyway, I said, can you put in, can you put in some curved switches and have some industries? And the guy who was doing it didn't like operating, so he said, no, nah, I don't want to. So, um, so the, the, the evolution, the, the collapse of the club also was the collapse of the operating sessions. So I, uh, um, it was one of these multi-front, um, you know, happenings that I said, okay, this is, you know, the, the potential for this to be what I thought it originally was going to be isn't really going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, you, you, you know, there's an old saying that you, you have to propose an idea eight times for it to get traction. And, uh, um, in many of the clubs I've been in, that has been true that, uh, um, I have brought up an idea. Uh, well, a classic case right now is the golden spike in the NMRA local. Um, I had been pushing the golden spike for like three years now, and all of a sudden it took off. And, uh, and I'm not saying I'm totally responsible for it, but I think that if you bring up an idea and somebody else has the idea, and I don't care who gets the credit, I just want the solution. And, uh, um, um so, uh, when I first got in the European club, there was a huge push to do operating sessions and uh um that that went away when the bulk of the people who lived in the peninsula went away they were they were the critical mass to make it happen and uh now we have two or three of us in the east bay who want to do it and um i have i have visions of making some european modules that are lighter and handier and have spurs for operating sessions and uh and they would work with the existing module people. So I, uh, but they're like my, not my present wave and not the next wave, but it's the wave after that. If you know what I mean, it's like the third wave of, of <laughs> construction. And certainly, and it, it's, it's an idea more than a, um, you know, I have no wood for it. I have no track for it. Um, I don't even have a, um, um, a, uh, a track plan, mm. even a track plan of the main line and, uh, um, and, the funny thing is is that we have these people online now when we do these co- conference calls that you talk with people all over the country. So we had 117 people on the uh, ETE conference call last week, and I brought up the idea. I said a long time ago there used to be a standard for a narrow gauge, a meter gauge, that ran along the back of the module. Mm. In other words, a, a come three inch in, inches in from the back. Like a forced compression.
0: As well, right? So, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah. first perspective. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and uh, that was that was mentioned when I first joined the European guys, which was probably ten years ago. Um, they uh, somebody mentioned that 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 standard exists somewhere, but um, the problem in European modules is people love standards so love standards so much that there are so many of them. Mm. So um, if you go around the country, um, not all the modules work with all and which is fine. I mean, modules are essentially a local item. You don't, you don't build a module with the idea of making it work within a module in Boston. Yes. And, uh, so, uh, but I, I think that, uh, and I think that, um, I think that the opportunities nowadays to have these vast, um, three style, you know, 400 module layouts. Um, those venues I think have gone mm. and, um, so I can remember at uh Portland they had one mm-hmm. they had an, they had another one recently and uh um, and Fremo is nice because you uh it's free in other words you you only have to meet the track and uh anything that, that has to change like leveling can be done with shims and you know boards and stuff like that so uh and it's d c so uh um so it's it's it uh it's you know some of the modules become kind of put aside until things change hmm. and uh because i have an i have an attic and i can stash stuff in the attic that may not get used for four or five years like yes. for example i have i have a uh you know these cross buck signs used for conventions to say layout tour mm-hmm. and uh, um well i have a a template for spray painting them and uh the front of it says railroad tours nmra and so forth and on the back of them when you're leaving the layer, you look at the back of the bucket and it says, check your pockets. Please don't take car cards. Mm. So I have, I have these, all these templates and they're in a box in my attic and, uh, they get dragged <laughs> out of it once every, once every five years. Certainly. And, uh, yes. And it's hard to get to, but I mean, i have to do it every five years. So, uh, but, uh, um.
0: They're interesting it, spaces, uh, attics. I mean, that was my, my sense with ours was that it had just become, like another place where we kept things and the things that we kept there were probably things that were better in front of us rather than hidden away. So with some discipline, I took everything down from the attic. I mean, we've got a couple of bits of luggage and stuff up there. But what I found through that was duplicates that I'd actually forgotten about and repurchased a number of things. So it was quite embarrassing to see that there were you know, two generations worth of attic stuff that had duplicates in it. But I guess what interests me with regards to your... Stable modules. I mean, obviously what happened with the European modules makes perfect sense because, you know, that's a community which is basically moving on. But in terms of yeah. the, in terms of the other modules, I mean, you, do you anticipate that every year you'll receive two to four modules that will require refurbishing, for example, or how does that work?
2: Well, I think that we have a rule in the club that if you exhibit in, the t- in front of the public, your module has to be finished, has to be scenic, has to have a, a drape, has to have everything done. But for an operating session, there's nothing wrong with a piece of plywood and track. So, um, and people do that. You will, somebody will come into the club and say, I got a new module. And all it is is switches and track and it works. But I mean, there's like the buildings consist of pieces of, of, um, masking tape with the name of an industry and, we encourage that because it means that by the time you finally get around to scenicing it, everything works and, uh, you hate ripping up scenery to replace a bad switch. And, uh, so it's a, uh, um, a, a good dynamic to have a, a private showing with the Europeans. We have something similar and we have what's called Oktoberfest and it is a party where a gentleman opens up his garage and he, uh, you can bring anything you want and you can hook it up and it doesn't have to be finished. And if it doesn't work, you can sit there and people will help you getting it to work. In other words, they're not trying to keep you out, they're trying to get you in. And, uh, so, um, you'll get some, a goodly collection of plywood Pacifics, but you'll also get some really good, um, well finished modules where the amount of work being done is maybe, you know, adding a tree here or a bush here or some people here or something, you know, something, something to enhance an already good module. And, uh, and that, that is set up in his garage to the point where the modules kind of stick out the front and stick out the back door of the garage. And that at night, um, they put a canopy over it, one of these Harbor Freight, you know, portable garages, mm-hmm. and then they put tarps over the modules themselves. So you're, um, you're prevented from rain and also from condensation. And, uh, so, I mean, that's the time to bring your, you know, once a year, you can show up with your European module and plug it in. And uh, um, and the gentleman who does that is a uh, very well, technically very skilled. And he'll look and see, oh, you need to do this, this and this and uh, put a gap here, run a feeder here. Um, you know, you got to have a relay here that talks to this and put this plug here. And uh, and he can kind of spend five minutes talking to you. And then you go off and spend three or four hours of wiring and then come back and say, is this right? And he says, yeah, only you got to move that one over. Mm. So what's happening in the European world is that they have gotten the automation down to the point where they they have a... Uh, um You know how you run a public layout where you have blocks? Mm-hmm. And when a train comes to a point where it has to stop because the next block is occupied, it goes when the next block is open. Well, the problem is when the train stops, it just bam, it stops. It mm. doesn't slow down, it just stops. Well, they've reached the point now where it does slow down. So it it slows down and kind of pulls up to a station or pulls up to a signal and kind of a gradual, you know, realistic slowdown. And then mm. when the next opens. So that automation exists in the European modules. Um, I, um, I, I have thought of creating automation for DCC, where essentially when you Talk to your DCC locomotive. You're sending a packet which has an address of the locomotive, a command to the locomotive, and a checksum. Now, mm-hmm. the, the algorithms are well known because they have a thing called DCC++, which is a homebrew DCC group. They make their own, um, they make their own throttles out of mm-hmm. Arduinos. So I said, you could permanently mount that in a layout, in a module where the first time a train enters a block, this module would say, okay, who are you? Because is a command you send to the locomotive that says, identify yourself and it talks back to you. And then it's okay. Now, whatever your speed is, cut it in half and cut it a little more and cut it a little more. So, I mean, it could be done automatically. So, I mean, again, that's, that's kind of a, um, to me, to me, the next move in the NMRA is to be more a Silicon Valley based technology focus, if you know what I mean. <laughs>
0: So, so, I mean, Falkenberg but was. in terms of OpenLC, well, look, I mean, Dave Falkenberg and I have longstanding discussions associated with this. I mean, I think OpenLCB, I agree in part. I mean, I think OpenLCB, these kind of influences, obviously, you know, the nature of Geordie and Co, the the radicals, for want a better term that come into the NMRA will perturb it without question. But yeah, I think it's interesting the. Yeah, the the notion that it's these people that are actually, which I think is probably the metaphor that you're using for associated with being a Silicon Valley, you know, enterprise. But yeah, it right. is it is an interesting. Anyway, continue. I'll let you finish that thought, Michael.
2: Well, yeah. Well, basically, um, the uh, the coast division has been heavily focused on the auction. Mm. We have an auction at every meeting, and it's it's kind of sacred, and uh, it's been going on. It's how we raise money now. To me. I have no great heartburn of driving to an NMRA meeting and paying $5 so they can rent a hall. In other words, here I am driving, you know, maybe two gallons of gas. There's six bucks. So what's another five? If I want a coffee, that's three or four bucks. So what's another five? In other words, it's it's what it costs to do business. So uh I would like to see more of a node of Coast Division grow up around the, uh maybe I would join a Silicon Valley club and just, <laughs> Do that because I think you can get an operating membership for like what $5 a month or something like that. Yeah,
0: I look, I mean, I, I pay for three memberships a month. My viewers, if you want in on my membership, I'll give you one of my three <laughs> since I'm never there, but I still pay for three a month. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you're interested in attending, I'm pretty sure, um, you know, Dave Fulkenberg or uh, Richard Murphy will be able to, to smuggle you in. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what actually happens with all these additional memberships. Look, we, we have on Clark Kooning. He has a topic. Oh, good. I, I wanted to get to him, Michael Dorney. It's been a pleasure chatting as always. We will talk oh, much yes. in the future, no doubt. Oh, one of these days, you
2: and I have to get together sometime and talk about my smart kid mm. and the whole paradigm of gifted and talented kids. Yeah, no, I think
0: it's something that fascinates me. And yes. yeah, it's, it's highly, yeah. It's, it's something that interests me on a variety of different levels. I, in tidying my podcasting room, I found the tape recording when I was two, three, this relates to the spirit podcast. I used to interview people and uh-huh. my mother very proudly kept one of these tapes or at least passed it on to me. And it's me at two and just after two and a half before three, but not quite there interviewing my uncle. And I think there's a, there's a phenomena associated with when you, when young children Realize that they have to have a kind of contributing, asking questions, interaction with the world kind of view. And it was certainly something that my, both my parents to the lesser extent, my father, but my mother very firmly was, you have to ask questions. You have to be present. You have to, you know, explore and have an interest. And yeah, I discovered this tape as I was tidying today. It made me think of model Royal right here. Michael Dorney, we will one day. Right. If you come to one of these meals. You were supposed to come to the last meal. I was looking forward to having this conversation with you. Unfortunately, I think you were ill at the time, but you didn't make it to the Narrow Gauge Convention. So we'll do it sometime.
2: Yeah. I didn't make the Narrow Gauge Convention. Yeah. That was kind of a, that was a confusing time. We could talk about that too. Anyway. So, uh, yes, I will catch you the next meal. Wonderful. uh, uh, (laughs) uh, Even even if we sit in a park. Okay. Talk to you then. Hello, Clark.
0: When Clark Cooning says he has a topic for discussion, I think the model rail radio audience is destined to listen. Clark Cooning, do you have audio? Let's get your audio at least first for a second. I, I do have audio. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, what is the question? What is the topic? What is the idea well, that you it, want to promote it's, here? Well,
3: it's a, it's a sad it's a sad thing actually. Mm. It's it's um I. Knew a fellow who I've known him for several years, and he since passed away. Mm -hmm. And now we're disposing of his railroad stuff. Mm -hmm. And I really come to, and I was looking at my stuff, and Mm -hmm. we were talking, a couple of other fellows were talking about the stuff. And about if you're a model railroader, and I hate to say it, but as you get up in age, uh and I know Charlie Getz, who is a uh, lawyer, has written about this in the NMRA. Um a number of people have talked about it about disposal of your model railroad equipment mm. um after you're no longer using it. Mm. And it's um it was quite something. This fellow uh uh home that we went to, um it was rather heartbreaking because you could see all the the pain he went through mm-hmm. to make these little scenes on his railroad. He he had all kinds of things, but it was his. It was it you know, you could tell what he enjoyed just by looking at his railroad. He liked building scenes into into different parts of the layout, such mm-hmm. as he had a fantastic, uh, dock scene with guys on the dock mm-hmm. and you could look at it and go, Oh, well, that guy's lifting that and he's mad because that guy isn't working. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and the other guy's having a pop. You could, you could just read into that scene. Certainly. And, and I was thinking, you know, once everything is gone, I mean, once you're gone, mm-hmm. um, it's a hell of a mess for a family to clean up. Certainly, and they don't know the value because we all say, "Oh no, it only costs us twenty bucks for that." Mm-hmm. Um, and but and some people get it. Um, the 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 widow she understood that you know when you go to a flea market or a estate sale, there's going to be dickering, and you're going to get only so much on the dollar.
0: Certainly,
3: and she understood that. And I, but I have been involved with other ones that think. They should get the sticker price, and mm. that just doesn't happen.
0: Um, so, you, and, this this is a topic that we were leading into here, Clark. You came just prior to your call, oh, but certainly okay. I've I've been tidying out my podcasting room. I've got two packages to send on to Mike Slater, with the view that he'll pass it on to to, to people as well. And we were talking about the notion of the H word hoarding and the hobby previously called, you know. Um, the personal model shop or whatever euphemism one wants to use in a circumstance. I mean, what interests me through this is the discussion of in particular, getting new folks into the hobby and this notion that perhaps downsizing should occur while people are still alive almost cognitively, you know, giving and I was talking, I think with Dave Ramos in a recent recording where he talked about the opportunity of actually receiving boxcars from people that he knew while they were still alive. Um right. And having those, you know, take pride of place in various points, some of them were very actively being used because that's what the person wanted, and some of them he had on the shelf, as in, you know, just to remember that particular person. And I think it's something that we've talked about periodically that certain prized items, be they, you know, locomotives, rolly stock, or in some cases bridges or other scenes, have come from, you know, folks in the hobby. Um Certainly Dave Vaughan, for example, in the Washington, D.C. area, has built a layout on other people's layouts. Um, Ros Flint, who periodically appears on Model Rail Radio, who's part of um, Jim Gifford's broader crew, built a layout from four separate layouts that uh, she had acquired through various means over three decades. So there is a culture, although it's a very small culture within the hobby, associated with moving these things on before people pass away What what's your view on this i mean you clearly yeah i, yeah. I would like to see that i'd mm-hmm. like
3: to see people um say hey or put aside some kind of little set and say hey if you can find a young kid who's maybe mm-hmm. starting out um why don't you uh you know when something happens passing on to them or at least give the people that are going to be left some kind of direction because mm-hmm. she had no direction on this um Uh, and her son and I have talked on the phone once because he was a little ways away. And so it's, it's, it was heartbreaking, uh, because as a modeler myself, I mean, I, I put effort into my little scene and then have somebody just come and go, Oh yeah, whatever. And rip out the bridge and Hmm. here's three bucks and you're gone. (laughs) Hmm. And so it was, it was quite a, Uh, myself and the other fellow were, were talking about quite a bit about how that was his focus and and the other thing he he had was he was quite a military collector and he built some beautiful beautiful military aircraft and tanks and dioramas and and he's got all and that that's all for sale too, you know, go to a people who would appreciate
0: it that's the that's also the big thing so um so you're advocating here ideally written instructions, perhaps written instructions that indicate value, potential people that might be interested in it i mean what what level of detail do you or, think people or, should or, go to here
3: well
0: i'd love i i mean and
3: i just sitting here looking and thinking, oh, if I did an inventory for my stuff, it would take me <laughs> three weeks. Hmm. Uh, um, but, or at least give direction and say, you know what? The guys in my club, I want them to sell it off for me because they'll, they'll know the value. They know me. Hmm. There's not going to be any hanky panky or something. Hmm. Uh, we had another fellow who has a stunning ON30 th- o- layout. Um, and he was a couple hours away, but he passed away and his wife phoned up a dealer who, you know, deals and stuff. And he came up, he had a look at it and he and he offered her like, you know, a nickel on the dollar. Hmm. And, um, it was like, no, she would rather even give the thing away Hmm. if it was going to be used, you know? And, uh, so it's, um, and it's a hard time too to get rid of With things right now because yeah. there's train shows, there's no, yeah. uh, uh, flea markets, there's no nothing. So it does make it a, a pretty hard, um, thing right now. But, uh, for people who are listening, if, uh, you know, wait, nobody wants to think about this stuff. It's like insurance. You don't buy insurance, uh, you know, um, <laughs> but you, you, um, Maybe have to think a little bit about it. At least just give some indication to your family, um, who you would like to at least help dispose of it and so mm. that and give those people a heads up. Uh, mm. uh uh like a friend of mine, he said, you know, if something ever happened to him, he's he's told his wife that it all would be gone to the club. Mm.
0: Um or and you know what I mean I think what you're advising here is ideally written instructions. And I think, I mean, my view philosophically is that the, the personal hobby store as a phenomena is really a double-edged sword in model railroading because oftentimes people never get to what they, you know, that this, it would be impossible to actually build everything that sure. some of these folks have. Sure. And I think what's interesting is certainly, um, locally, Ted Stevens is a good example of this. He, he has sold a lot of kits. He's maybe not gone through the full rationalization, but he at least has advocated that he has a problem, so to speak, and he has a means of dealing with this problem. And I think what interests yeah. me through this is, um, certainly my wife has said this to me with regards to my uh, toy soldiers, specifically. This is something that's first completely of all, first of all they're not <laughs> toys they're a hobby I understand, but let me just i I'm, I'm putting it out here the the did um you know buried with me melted down bullets a wide variety of things but what it yes. what it means actually is to leave written instructions when my grandfather when my maternal grandfather passed away, he left notes in everything which right. in and of itself was wonderful um yeah. it saved his um my grandmother, his wife, a lot of heartache, but also it meant that you had the note with the thing. So, right. for example, you know, certain records were left to me, keep the notes, and books were left to me, keep the note. And um although um, his collection of matchboxes, which was very overwhelming and required a lot of... <laughs> I didn't keep all the matchboxes that he gave to me, but you know, it required some of that aspect, but he was very mindful associated with giving these, you know, written things. And I think that to me has been a gold standard, um, which I'm not in any way adhering to, although I try to, I try to certainly pass on a lot of stuff as well. Um, but now in particular, it's very, you know, I think people are thinking a lot more now about these uh-huh. things. Yes. because of the current circumstances and also, um, you know, the nature of just the crisis that's going on currently. And I think it's interesting that people, in being mindful about it, should probably start allocating some of their free time, if they have it, to creating inventory, for a start, yep. to, as you say, identify people. Um, and in particular, you have done this on many different occasions, Clark. I know that you... Um, both in your former location and also as you described now, are all are actively involved in these circumstances. You probably more than anyone I know in this hobby, um, have been, you know, called in because I think you're you're known for whatever reason, for being trustworthy in these kind of things. So I mean, your experience has this has been a you get maybe three of these a year, right? Well,
3: um, when I was in the, the South, I was probably approached three times a year. Yeah. Uh, up here, at not quite as much because we just don't have the volume of modelers, certainly. but, um, it's certainly, um, it's a hard thing. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, especially when you know the modeler and you go and you remember him talking about, you know, this car and I gave him a problem, but he, was able to get it to work and you kind of go, Oh, cool. I know in the South, this, the, and we've talked about it before, the Maple Leaf mafia, group, there was a fella who, um, we really got along, but he was quite an older fella. And I was asking him one time about building a car and he basically brought out a kit and he had the same kit. So we had two kids and I built the car with him hmm. The way sort of he does it. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, he passed away kind of unexpectedly, his wife said to, he had entrusted it to a couple of the leaders of the, of the group that his wife said that this gentleman said, Clark gets first dibs on that car. Cause mm-hmm. I left it on his layout because I wasn't particularly in that scale. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when, The, they auctioned off to the group before they sold it sort of worldwide. And they said, Clark, you have, you know, first dibs and this was the price that Stan wanted for you. Basically just wanted the cost of the kit, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and I said, well, that's fair enough. And I, and I said, I would like to buy the one Stan built with me.
0: Certainly.
3: And they said, certainly no problem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I have both of them here at, at the house, but I don't even I'm not it's they were ON3 and I don't actively model ON3. <laughs> but, Certainly, yes. Um so I I I appreciated that though. I you know and um so things like that. Um I think it's important for us as modelers, especially as we get older and with current mm. things, well even young guys uh you know stuff happens unfortunately and mm. you should at least have that discussion because I think it would make it a lot easier on your family. I think it would make it a lot easier on even you, you know, to, to rest, um, with the knowledge that somebody was going to look after your stuff. Certainly. And, um, it's just kind of a solemn topic, but it was quite, as I said, it was a quite an interesting day that I spent over there testing some engines and, and so forth. Uh, and, um, and that, so we can sort of prepare to have a little estate sale of the of the railroad equipment. But it was, um, yeah, it was kind of one of those topics where you go, hmm, you know. But and I think it's uh, important,
0: I mean, as you note here, particularly for spouses, it's really important to think of the quality of life that your spouse has after you've passed to a certain extent, right? Oh, sure. So, I mean, my perspective here is that this is an important topic to raise, Primarily because, you know, unfortunately, genetically, and through the dastardly nature of biology, men tend to pass away early, right? So, yeah. and my, well, I mean, always you look at the obituary column; it always says "survived by his wife." Yes, and so in almost all <laughs> cases, that is the inevitability uh, yes. the world is going to put before us. Yeah. That being said, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting just to have the process to do the thing to just take inventory, and I'm thinking about this just as you talk, The inventory in the terms of small notes or something that can just be kind of tucked away where it's accessible but, you know, it doesn't have to be front centre, so to speak. I mean, these ways of dealing with these things is probably relatively straightforward if you allocate some degree of time. Now, you know, over time, these things might change. And it's interesting, actually, the nomination of clubs and these kind of things is probably very good here too. Uh, yes. I, I recall when I was in uh, Lansing, I went to. Um, uh, in fact, he's, a, he's participated in model rail radio uh, periodically, and he had a large collection of I think Union Pacific stuff that uh, one of the his club members had passed away. He had that. He showed it to me briefly. I said, "Look, just name your price. <laughs> More than that, you're happy, you know, interested in the stuff." But I think the the Nature of it, the stuff remaining local was something that was important for them as well. The notion that these were locomotives and rolling stock that would be evenly distributed locally, where they would still have a memory of this person in the kind of shared thing, which ultimately I think is the same with the, um, you know, the stuff that, uh, Dave Vaughan has is that it is very much a history of his locals in his area, um, as well. So yeah, it is very interesting the way certain people in the lobby are very mindful of this. And I think, um, in the case of John Armstrong stuff, it was basically his children or his son who had very neatly organized. And I think that was probably, I mean, I don't know, but that had to have been a conversation that John Armstrong and his son had had at some stage leading into that. So yeah, it is interesting. It's interesting. So I,
3: yeah, I, I, I just thought we, uh, this, other fellow and I, where we're talking about it, um, he was a, a fairly good friend of this fellow and he's not in model railroading anymore, but mm. they, you know, run the layouts and stuff. And, and, um, you know, when, when he passed, his uh, wife said, would
0: you, you know, help me out and look after the railroad stuff? And he said, sure. So, and your gold but, standard yeah. here, to, to be clear, the Clark Kooning gold standard, which you may not personally adhere to at this stage, but may consider adhering to is dividing, identifying in writing, identifying a club or other benefactors. I know the NMRA has a, or historically at least, because I remember you talking about it, had a, you know, deceased estate bequeathment thing, didn't they, where people could do that with the NMRA, is that... Yes, there was, and you know what, I've either...
3: I I don't want to misspeak um so that people think that they can just turn their stuff in but um there was a we did have a bit of a program at one time mm-hmm. that uh you know we or you could contact uh, certain people in the NMRA and they would certainly help you and and point you in the right direction if mm-hmm. you've never done this before so
0: but yeah, to be clear about- your gold standard is something in writing ideally and just either you know left with the stuff yeah, with the spouse, or I mean, what's, what's your?
3: Yeah, I think in writing would be a, at least a, a you know what you what you'd like where you'd like to see stuff go, mm-hmm. and then the next one would be verbal to the family and and that but that can also create family issues, mm-hmm. um, which you know you'd, you when you depart you don't want to have family <laughs> fighting so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, you know you you want to make sure it's done right and 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 you know that everybody's going to be all right with it because you you were the one that directed to you know this is the way you wanted to see it go so mm.
0: but uh, heavy yeah, stuff, plot like turning, heavy stuff.
3: It is it is heavy stuff, but it was such a I don't know I I don't know if it was sentimental because I could see. The the uh, little details and and that was his thing, right? So you go, oh man, hey Bruce, you you know you or Fred or Harry, you did a really nice job in this area, and oh man, too bad you're not here to explain it, you know.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh. What? We'll You've 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 lowered the mood, but I think also potentially I, yes. raised the mood as well. I think no, it was kind of a it was kind of a downer
3: to end on the. So on I the, mean, uh,
0: let's roll uh, this back into the topic that we were discussing previously prior to you joining. Was the nature of like do we? So the, the background to this is that my sister and law is coming to stay with us potentially for an extended period of time, and I've had to clean out my podcasting room, and in doing so, I've generated a few priority mailboxes of which uh, a couple will be going to our own mics later, um, containing some, you know, model rail radio artefacts of kind of lesser extent. And what interests me through this is the, also in parallel to this, in part because of my wife's interest in this, I my wife and I have been watching the Hoarders TV show. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this TV show. Yeah, yes. But um You know, this, this has always struck me as the, the kind of, extreme of which model writing has elements to it let's just move that to one side so <laughs> a
3: question.
0: like how I mean in terms of the logistics of this thing I talked to Mike Slater talked to Mike Adoni do you have a rule associated with stuff coming in stuff going out I mean do you, how do you combat the nature and I know for a fact that you I've, I've seen you at shows I've seen you at shows with regards to trains in particular I know that you are a collector of certain things. So moving that aside, what philosophy do you have with regards to like giving stuff away, getting stuff through? If you buy new stuff, particularly like scale creep, all this kind of stuff, what's your general philosophy associated with combating hoarding or if you just completely lost that?
3: No, no, I think,
0: I think that
3: becomes, uh, with your maturity in the hobby, when you first become a model railroader, every shiny boxcar you buy. Oh, I got to have that. Oh, I got to have that because it, it just intrigues you. And then as you settle down and kind of maybe even pick a prototype, you say, oh, I'm going to model, you know, uh, the UP in the San Fernando Valley or whatever. Then you start to narrow your focus. So you don't go out and buy the csx locomotive even though you like it oh it's not quite in my modeling skills or my not my skills but in my modeling uh terminology and you start to and you start to back up um in what you buy which is good Mm. um on the other hand (laughs) you do fun stuff and you start buying like crazy or you go into another skill like i have Mm. but um so yeah you do i think as you evolve things become a little bit more clear and you start to um walk back from from just buying everything so uh naturally i think that happens the you know the in and out type of thing mm-hmm. now um i i have been sell- sold off a couple of things that Initially, I thought would fit into my layout mm-hmm. and where I was going, but it it's changed and my my ideas have changed. So I've sold stuff off, and I bought at one point. I was on a tear of buying the big uh, auto racks and especially intermountain ones because they have the see through grill and all that. And you know, in a hobby shop, well, here in Canada, they go for about one hundred and thirty dollars mm-hmm. a piece, mm-hmm. and to have a nice little uh, my idea was to have two trains sort of uh one east one westbound uh as through (laughs) trains in this and you know at sort of eight to ten cars each Mm. all of a sudden you're at 20 cars well um i did acquire all those over time but now it's not what i'm really doing so Mm. um so I have sold off a few of those and some were really nicely weathered. I spent some time on them and that, but I, but that was fine. I sold them off and bought, um, something that was more relative to, to what I was doing. So I think that happens through maturity of, so of your the- logistics
0: are associated with wheeling and dealing, basically that if you yeah. buy something, you know that you're going to sell it off at some stage if you get out of that particular interest. So.
3: Well, yeah, you t- I, I don't, uh, you know, there's a few things that I, I have not sold. Uh, you know, I was in SN3, I think, even when we first met. And I was going to ask you
0: about I had, that. I had quite a bit of it and yes.
3: I still have quite a, now I did sell off two of the PBL engines and they were quite expensive, but mm-hmm. I have, I have one engine. Actually, I have two engines left. And I have almost all my cars and I have almost all the buildings. Um, now eventually I, cause I don't see myself getting back into that. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually I'll probably, if the opportunity, uh, um, strikes is to be able to sell them. And, uh, um, I think our friend out there in, uh, Minneapolis or no, I'm sorry, uh, Minnesota, or maybe he lives in Wisconsin, but the Mr. S scale out there, Michael know who I'm talking about. Uh, maybe he would like some of my S scale stuff that uh, is not narrow gauge, but buildings and so forth. Mm. So, But um, yeah, that just happens. I think you, and of course, when, before I retired, I was buying stuff in anticipation <laughs> of not having any hobby shop within mm. eight hours of me. And wanting to have it there. So when I went to go do something, I didn't have to wait for a week for stuff to be mailed up. Mm. And that has worked out pretty good, but mm. I've started to go, well, why did I buy this? I, I really am not going to use it now. Mm. So, um, selling that stuff off. Um, I don't have a lot of heartache now. Some of the end scale stuff. I mean, I, I, was also big uh, N-scaler. Um, I pretty well have everything in N-scale. I, I, <laughs> I've I kept it. But then again, mm. I also have a few T-track modules, so mm. I do use them. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> hoarding, yes. Well, my my sort of downfall is structures. I love structures. and mm. um, I'm probably looking at 75 unbuilt kits right now so Mm. um yes i guess the biggest uh the first step is to admit you have a
0: problem (laughs) (laughs) very good time very good time with that let us conclude uh let's conclude this uh episode of model raw radio a pleasure chatting as always and uh yeah i think certainly written instructions leaving written notes this is uh this is the yeah, takeaway at, that I've got from this discussion. At,
3: at worst, at worst, give some verbal instructions mm. to a couple of people. And, um, and, you know, if you think your, your club or your monorail friend is going to, um, ask him, you know, ahead of time, like, will you do this for me? And, mm. and, um, that way there's a lot of trust built up in that. So anyway, let's, uh, <laughs> on that note, um, I hope uh, all our listeners are safe and enjoying the beginning of summer. I know we certainly are here in northern Ontario. Mm. Um, the uh, the black flies are almost gone, but the mosquitoes um, at the airport were landing.
0: So very good. good. They, they they were requiring <laughs> flight traffic control. I think is the oh, yeah. some of them are pretty damn big. <laughs> yeah, always <laughs> a pleasure chatting, Clark. Thank you very much for calling in today and. Uh, and furnishing us with an interesting topic, well worth discussing. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Quality, not quantity, ladies and gentlemen. That has been the discussion uh, today. Wonderful catching up with uh, Mike O'Dorney, Mike Slater, and Clark Cooning. And yeah, an interesting, an interesting set of topics. And certainly, I think. You know, Mike O'Dorney raised some interesting perspectives, and it was wonderful chatting with uh, with Mike. And Clark's point, associated with written notes, I think, very important. So, thanks to everyone for uh, for calling in today. Thanks to folks for listening in. Good afternoon. Thanks, Tom. Thanks,
2: Tom. Thanks, Tom. Bye.